0: Last week, we left Israel on the plains of Moab, ready to enter the Promised Land. Well, God had preserved and blessed them as a nation, even overthrown several enemy plots to curse them. And the old generation, remember the Israelites who had crossed the, uh, the sea on dry ground, but had then refused to enter the Promised Land? That generation has died. And now their children are ready to enter the promised land and seize God's blessing for themselves. So that's where we left Israel. And if you thought an overview of the second half of Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers last week was ambitious, well, today... We're going to fly over Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Samuels, a portion of the Kings, a little bit of the Chronicles, and even into the Psalms. So, several hundred years of history, and I'm warning you today, the lesson will be long again. But, just hang in there because next week I anticipate the lesson will be shorter and you'll have more time for discussion around your tables. The lesson itself is quite short. It's only 18 questions and you only have one text of scripture to read. It's one psalm and it's not very long. So, and next week is actually the halfway point. So you have made it this far already. Please don't give up now. Before Israel could enter the promised land, They needed a new leader. God was ready to take Moses home, and so he told him to appoint his longtime assistant, Joshua, to lead the people into the Promised Land. So Joshua leads this new generation of Israel through a second water crossing. So when the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord step into the Jordan River, which separates them from Jericho, the water, God causes the overflowing river to stop flowing. It actually piles up far away from them. And this new generation has their own miraculous faith-building experience before they enter the promised land well right away in jericho we meet rahab the prostitute and she very wisely decides not to make an enemy of god or his people so she hides and she protects the israelite spies who have been sent into jericho for a reconnaissance mission And in Joshua 2, 8 through 14, she says, "'I know that the Lord has given you the land, "'and the fear of you has fallen on all of us. "'For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water before you "'when you came out of Egypt, "'and we have heard what you have done "'to the two kings of the Amorites. "'And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. "'For the Lord your God, "'He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath.'" And now, as I have dealt kindly with you, swear that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and deliver him and all his family from death. So Rahab blesses God's people. And how does God treat those who bless his chosen nation? He blesses them. That's right. And so Rahab, she and her entire family are spared when Jericho falls And to our surprise, she is even incorporated into Israel, landing a spot in the ancestral line of the coming King of glory. Do you need more proof of God's goodness and mercy? He plucks a prostitute right out of the serpent's offspring and places her in a prominent position in the line of the coming King of glory. Well, the book of Joshua is a story of conquest. Those people that God had delayed judging for over 400 years Do not repent, and they do not bless God's people. They resist God, and they try to curse his people. And as the offspring of the snake, they are crushed. And that is the general idea of the book of Joshua. God judges these enemies, and he gives their land to Israel. But Rahab is right there at the beginning of the book to signal that even in his just judgment, God is eager to show mercy on those who hear his words and believe them. Well, by the end of the book, Joshua has set up the Lord's tabernacle now at Shiloh. He's divided up the land of Canaan among the tribes, and then he sends them all away, each to their own inheritance. And we're told in Joshua 21.45 that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. But then Joshua dies. And so does Eliezer, the high priest. So a generation of Israel's faithful leaders die. And we're left with the question, what will happen now that they are gone? And our next book, the book of Judges, answers that question. So before both Moses and Joshua died, they reminded Israel of the blessings on them if they would keep God's words. And they reminded them of the curses on them, if they rebelled against God's words. And the blessings were amazing. Essentially, God had promised to just roll back the curse. No infertility, no famine, no disease, no enemies. Success in all their work, if Israel could just obey they would have a paradise-like existence, a true Eden reboot. In fact, they were told that God was bringing them into a land with homes he had already prepared for them. They moved into houses they didn't have to build. They drank wine from vineyards they did not plant. They harvested crops they didn't have to grow. Does this sound like Eden? It should. If Israel could be faithful to God, they would never be homeless or hungry again. If they could be faithful to God, he would continue to defeat all their enemies and keep their borders safe. If they would listen to God, they were guaranteed success. They would be fruitful in everything their hand found to do. They would flourish in the promised land, and it wouldn't just be the people flourishing, but God even would bless their livestock in the land itself so that they would be fruitful. So this was a land of abundance like Eden. But as wonderful as the blessings were, the curses that hung over them were severe if they rebelled. But here again, we see the justice of God even in the curses, because they are, as always, clearly stated. If Israel rebelled against God, if they ignored his words and broke the covenant they had made with God, they would experience famine and hunger and thirst. God would shut up the sky from giving them rain and shut up the wombs of their women and their livestock so that they could not be fruitful anymore. The children they did have would be taken from them. God would stop fighting for them, and their enemies would begin to harass them on every side. He would send diseases to weaken them. You can read all the blessings and all the curses outlined for Israel in Deuteronomy 28. But back to the question this book poses the book of Joshua poses. What will happen now that their faithful leaders have died? Well, Judges 2, 7 through 10 says this. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And then all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Trouble in paradise. A new generation that doesn't know the Lord or the work he has done for Israel. I mean, putting aside the grand failure of parenting that led to this ignorance, this opening to the book of Judges signals disaster for Israel. So you should expect to see all the curses outlined for them in Deuteronomy 28 unleashed on them in the pages ahead. So here is the story of Judges. And so we don't miss it. It's actually stated seven times throughout the book. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil is what happens when faithful leaders die. And so we don't miss the connection between Israel's evil and their lack of good leaders. We're also told four times that in those days there was no king in Israel. In fact, that is the closing statement to the entire book of Judges, and it adds this explanation. There was no king in Israel, and, or so, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, after Israel's faithful leaders die, no one rises up to replace them, and the people do whatever they want, whatever they think is right. And the book of Judges practically screams We need a king! We need someone faithful to rule so that we keep listening to God's words. And that's the conclusion we should all draw from the book of Judges and as we'll see in First Samuel as well, that when you reject God as your king, there is no hope for peace or righteousness or justice of any kind. So in Judges, Israel quickly degenerates into sin of every kind. First and foremost, idolatry. So God actually compares Israel to a promiscuous wife here. He had made an exclusive marriage vow, a commitment with Israel, but Israel breaks that vow over and over and over again as they lustily embrace the gods of all the people and nations around them. Any god will do, really, just not their own. So God describes his people as whoring after other gods. That is how ugly the sin of idolatry is. So Israel gives themselves over to idolatry, and when people stop worshiping God, all other kinds of perversity quickly follow. So we get oppression of the poor, foreigners and widows and orphans, we get sexual sins of every stripe, greed, detestable violence and bloodshed, human sacrifice, including child sacrifice kidnapping, murder, rape, and finally, the whole book ends in civil war, where 11 tribes of Israel go to war with and nearly obliterate the tribe of Benjamin. This is what happens without God. Destructive evil and perversity of every kind. Why would we ever want a world without him? Well, what does God do in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness? As we've seen before, he is just, he will keep the law, and he is faithful to his promises. So he punishes them exactly as he warned he would do. And Judges 2:14 and 15 were told that he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand them, and they were in terrible distress." But do you know what the very next words are? Because not only is God just, he is, yes, he is merciful. Judges 2.16 reads, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And then Israel would, for a time, until that judge died, obey God's words. But when the judge died, like a dog returning to its vomit... Israel would return to her corruption. So God would once more afflict them with their enemies and then they would cry out in desperation and God would have pity on them and he would send a deliverer, a judge, to defeat their enemies and rescue them. So it's in these cycles that we meet some of the colorful characters of the Old Testament. People like the left-handed Ehud who stabs the obese king of Moab with a dagger that just gets lost in his flabby belly (laughs) We meet, see, the Bible has a little bit of everything. We meet Deborah, and she pushes a reluctant Barak to fight the Canaanites. But when he shows some unwillingness, she says, fine, the battle, the victory, will be in the hands of a woman, and that's exactly what happens. We meet the likes of Gideon, and we're just desperate for him to man up and show some confidence in God, which he eventually does. We meet Samson, who, despite all of God's gifts to him, is very, very flawed. He makes a shipwreck of his life. But nevertheless, in his death and through his faith in God, he scores an unlooked for victory over Israel's longtime oppressor, the Philistines. Well, seven times this cycle is repeated sin, judgment, repentance, rescue, and then it repeats. And then the whole book, as I said earlier, descends into civil war. And the only conclusion we can draw is how desperately humanity needs God. How desperately a nation craves a good ruler to establish righteousness and justice and peace in the land. And not only do we need a good ruler, we begin to understand that humanity needs a ruler that won't die. Because the moment a faithful leader dies, Israel just goes off the rails, like a sheep with no shepherd. Well, that brings us to the next book of the Bible. So out of the bleakness of Judges, we get the sweetest story of love and hope in the book of Ruth. So this story occurs during the time of the Judges in the small town of Bethlehem at harvest time. So Bethlehem actually means house of bread, but at the beginning of the story, Bethlehem is afflicted with famine. So there is no bread in the house of bread. And we see here that this is another one of God's curses on Israel for disobeying. But in this beautiful story, we meet a young, barren, Moabite widow. And despite being a Moabite, one of the enemies, this young widow loves her Israelite mother-in-law who is also a widow, she loves her so much that she leaves her country and her family to move to Bethlehem in Judah, where her mother-in-law is from. Does that sound like anyone else we've met so far in our story, leaving country and family? Well, in some of the most beautiful language of all scripture, Ruth, that's her name, makes a covenant of love with her mother-in-law, Naomi, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. She says this, For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death keeps me from you. So in Ruth, we see the covenant heart of God. She is steadfast and loyal in her love to Naomi. And you can't help but wonder... Is there no one in Israel capable of such covenant faithfulness? Well, Naomi recognizes the treasure she has in her daughter-in-law, and she is determined to do her some good. So she finds Ruth a new husband who is worthy of her. And we see, oh, there are some in Israel who are faithful to their covenant with God. Well, after Ruth marries Boaz, that's his name, God reverses her barrenness. And she gives birth to a son named Obed. And at the very end of the book, we're given a little mini genealogy that starts all the way back with Tamar and Judah's son. His name is per- Perez. Perez. Do you remember Tamar from last week? Okay. This is the son that Judah fathered through his daughter-in-law. And one of them's name is Perez, and he is the great, great, great-grandfather of Boaz, Ruth's husband, and he fathers Obed. Obed will go on to father Jesse. Jesse will father a bunch of sons, the youngest of whom is a shepherd boy named David." So this is a lovely story, but you don't necessarily pick up on the fact, the significance of it in your first time reading it until you get this genealogy. Only then do we realize these people are Judah's descendants. And why is that important? What did we learn last week? From Judah's prophecy in Genesis 49, we learned that the king of glory will descend from these people from the line of Judah. Well, after the book of Ruth, one of the first people we meet in the next book of 1 Samuel is Hannah, and she is yet another barren woman during the time of the Judges. So she is so desperate for a son that she pleads with God, pledging that if he grants her request, she will give that son right back to him to be his servant all the days of his life. Well, God grants her request, and Samuel is born. And after so many years of poor leadership during the time of the judges, God raises up the son of Hannah to be a faithful prophet and judge in Israel. In fact, while he is still just a boy in the tabernacle, Samuel hears God's voice calling his name. And God had not been speaking much during the time of the judges because people would not listen. But when he does speak, he speaks to a boy. Another surprise here. He doesn't speak to the high priest. He doesn't raise up another judge like Samson. He picks Samuel the boy. And Samuel says what we should all say when God speaks. He says, speak, your servant hears. So that boy who listened to God's words grows up to be the next ruler in Israel. He helps Israel push back their enemies, the Philistines, and he leads Israel to be faithful to God. But then he grows old and Israel demands a king. That's in 1 Samuel 8. Now we already know that God is going to raise up a king in Israel So a king in itself is not a bad thing. It's actually God's plan. But Israel's motives for wanting a king were not good. They didn't request a king so that he could keep them from rebelling against God, as Samuel had done. Their motives were much more juvenile. They're like, all the other nations have one. We want one too. And they added, we need a king to lead us into battle and fight for us. But who fights for Israel? They've never needed a king to do that for them, because God himself fights for Israel and wins all their battles. So Samuel is grieved by their request, but God tells him, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. But go ahead and obey their voice, but warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So here again, we see the merciful warning in God's words to Israel. This will not turn out well for you, Israel. You will install a king who will rule, but not necessarily with justice or righteousness. That is what Samuel warns them in 1 Samuel eight ten through 18, and this is a rough paraphrase of what he says. He says, a king is going to exact taxes and labor from you. He will force your best men to be soldiers in his army and your women to work in his household. He will seize the best lands and the best livestock for himself. You won't like it, and then you'll go crying to God, but he will not answer you on that day because this is what you asked for. Well, the people don't listen to Samuel, they ignore God's words of warning, so God gives them a king from the tribe of Benjamin, his name is Saul. And Saul actually has a really good beginning, and you kind of feel hopeful at this point in the story. Saul successfully defeats some of their enemies, he is tall and kingly, and the people love him, but things begin to unravel. And we find that Saul is quick to distrust the word of the Lord. He gets impatient with God and impatient with waiting for God to work. He rashly takes things into his own hands. He disobeys God's laws about sacrifice. And he disobeys God's direct order about their battle with the Amalekites. And God sees. He knows exactly what is in Saul's heart. It is a faithless and self-serving heart. He does not have the heart of a shepherd toward his sheep. So God tells Saul that he is going to strip the kingship out of his hands and give it to another man, a man after God's own heart. And that is when we find ourselves back in Bethlehem, the home of Ruth, her son Obed, and his son Jesse. God sends Samuel there to anoint his new king. And Samuel meets Jesse, and he looks at seven of his impressive sons, But God says in 1 Samuel 16, not these, you are looking at the outward appearance, but I am looking at the heart. So Samuel inquires whether or not there are more sons, and we learn that there is one more, the youngest, overlooking the firstborn here again, and he is just a shepherd boy. But they call him in, and we get our first glimpse of Israel's new and better king, he is described as ruddy. He probably has like a youthful flush in his cheeks. He has beautiful eyes and he is handsome. We're told that in 1612. So it's interesting, we get a physical description even after God has just told Samuel that he's looking at the heart. And what I think we learn from this is that David is handsome and kingly, and strong. I mean, he's already fought off a lion and a bear at this point to protect the sheep in his flock. He is all these things so that Israel, who looks at the outward appearance, will embrace him. But he has a loyal heart of love for God, which is why God embraces him as king. Then we're told in the space of two verses that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, but departs from Saul. Clearly, God has chosen David over Saul. Now, David, just like Abraham before him, has to do some waiting before this promise is fulfilled. And it is in the waiting where we see his heart and his character proved. During this time, he demonstrates to Israel and to God that he is worthy of the kingship. So first, he fights and kills Goliath, the giant, on behalf of God and all of Israel. So he was the sole Israelite who was willing to put his life on the line to fight for God's reputation and glory. And after that crucial moment, David goes on to fight brilliantly in Saul's armies, and he begins to rise in the military ranks, and his men love him, and so do the ladies who begin to sing songs about David, songs that Saul overhears and make him very jealous. But some other things we learn about David during this time of waiting, he is not just a fighter, he is a skilled musician, and he is recruited to play the harp for Saul, actually, when Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. During this time, David will go on to form a lifelong friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, even making a covenant of loyalty with him. Well, as David's popularity grows, so does Saul's jealousy. And by now, he knows that God has chosen David as his, as his successor. So he tries to murder David. But Jonathan, his son, saves David's life. David then flees his country, okay? He has to leave his country and his family, and he hides in the wilderness, eventually taking refuge in enemy territory. The wilderness and the enemy territory becomes the land of his sojournings. Are you seeing a pattern in the stories? Well, twice during this time, he has the opportunity to kill Saul, who is relentlessly hunting him. But David does not take either opportunity, refusing to raise his hand against God's anointed king. So David knows what has been promised him, just like Jacob knew what had been promised him. But unlike Jacob, David does not manipulate. He does not connive to get the blessing God promised, but he patiently waits. He waits for God to keep his promise in his time and in his way. Well, King Saul dies in battle at the end of 1 Samuel. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, after years of hardship, betrayals, near-death experiences, and wilderness living— David hears of Saul's death and Jonathan's death on the battlefield, and he grieves. He grieves the fall of Israel and of Israel's kingly line, and then he waits some more, waits to see how God will keep his promise to him. Well, God does keep his promise, and he installs David on the throne of Israel. That account is complicated, but it, and it opens the book of 2 Samuel. But the thing is, to remember here, don't forget just how much David's path to the throne was fraught with enemies and hardship and tears and anguish. But at long last, David, of the tribe of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, sits on the throne of Israel. And he is a good king, God gives him victory after victory over his enemies. He pushes them back, and Israel lives in peace. God gives him rest, as we see in 2 Samuel 7, 1. And there's a word we haven't talked about since God himself rested after creation in Genesis 2. But this is a word work that will continue to come up through the Bible story. So rest is something God established for Israel to practice in the wilderness. On the Sabbath, Israel was to do no work, just like God had done no work on the seventh day of creation week. And this rest was built into all their traditions, and it required faith. They had to have faith that it was God who was working for them. God was making Israel fruitful. They didn't have to scramble like the nations around them to keep their fields producing or the wine flowing or to ensure that enemies would attack, wouldn't attack, because God is the one who did all those things for Israel. When Israel rested, they actually showed their dependence on God. This was an act of faith. But here we see that David is granted rest from God. His enemies are at peace around him, and he rules, and he even builds himself a palace, as we see in chapter 7. So that's what you read for your homework this week, and you saw David's heart toward God. He wants to build a house for God so that God can live among his people as he had in their wilderness wanderings and as he had in the Garden of Eden so many years ago. And we haven't talked much about Israel's wilderness wanderings, but you do need to know that while they were in the wilderness, Israel had constructed, according to God's specifications, a tent where God could live with them. You see, God couldn't be with Israel like he had been with Adam and Eve, not because God is different now but because people are different. They had sinned. And for God to walk among Israel as he had in the garden, the problem of sin and rebellion had to be dealt with. And what is God's law against sin and rebellion? What does he require? It's it's death. Death is the law against sin and rebellion. So this tent was a place where God's justice could be accomplished but also a place where his mercy would shine. In the tabernacle, animals would die in the place of sinners. Their spilt blood would cover Israel's sin, so that the law was kept and God could once again be with his people. But direct access to God was severely limited, just like the sacrifices were limited, because an animal life isn't a fair exchange for the life of one of God's image bearers. So this access to God was limited. Only the high priest could enter God's presence directly and only once a year on the day of atonement and only after he had purified everything with the blood of animals. Death, so much death because there is so much sin. But this arrangement allowed God to go with Israel all throughout their wanderings. The Israelites lived in tents, and now God had his own special tent, and Israel could see the fire of his glory filling that tent, and they knew that he was with them. Well, that was hundreds of years ago. David looks at the what's left over of the tabernacle, and he thinks, well, I'm living in a palace. Shouldn't God have one, too? But God, who never stops surprising us, has another idea. He tells David, you know, if I wanted a home, I would have told you. But let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. And with a play on the word house, he tells David, I'm going to build you a house, a dynastic house that will stretch across the pages of history all the way into eternity. A king from your family line will sit on Israel's throne Forever. Now, Israel already knows that the coming snake crusher will be a king from the line of Judah and that he will rule the nations of the earth. And perhaps they thought that David was the answer to that. I mean, he is a king from Judah. He has been militarily successful. God has given him rest from his enemies. Many of those enemy nations have become his vassal states, which pay tribute to him. So David, in a sense, is ruling over multiple nations, not just Israel. But how long can this arrangement last? David is aging. He is going to die. And there is a reason he is going to die. He's not innocent either though his character is marked by faith in God, he too has broken God's laws, and he will go on to do so in some very grievous ways in the, in the coming chapters. So David cannot be the king. He cannot be the answer to the problem of the snake or the problem of sin. And so God gives us another clue in his blessing on David. He says, you are not that king, but one of your descendants Will be the king of glory and his throne will be established forever. So, this promise to David once again narrows the lineage down to David's ancestors. David is from the tribe of Judah, like we saw last week, and now the story shifts to following his specific line as we search for the king of glory. Okay, so a little summary here. We know from Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49 that this king of glory will rule all the nations. And now we know from 2 Samuel 7 that this king will reign forever. And after the horror of the book of Judges, we know this is exactly what humanity needs, a good king that doesn't die but rules forever so that this Eden reboot can go on eternally. This prophecy reveals that through David's line of descendants, God will reverse the curse and permanently restore the goodness of Eden. Now this narrative in Second Samuel is like a bridge between our previous prophecies and the future prophecies that now we're gonna kind of start coming faster. So it looks back at all that God has revealed in its language of rest, which we talked about already, great name. So when we talk about great name, we have to remember that God promised to make Abraham's name great. And here he is passing that same blessing on to David. So we should connect these two prophecies. The language of enemies also takes us all the way back to the garden and to the conflict that began there. And it takes us back to Numbers, where God decreed a curse on those who cursed Israel. The word offspring takes us back a little bit to Judah, takes us back to Abraham, and it brings us all the way back to the woman. And then the language of forever. Abraham was told that this promise of a new Eden on earth in the promised land was to be an everlasting possession for Abraham's descendants. This narrative also kind of recaptures some language we've just begun to notice and will become prominent in future prophecies. So David is called God's servant. I don't know if you caught that, but Samuel was also called God's servant. And last week we noted that God called his firstborn son Egypt out of Egypt To serve him. So we're going to start seeing that word more and more often. Also, the word house. We saw that briefly with Abraham, where God commanded him to leave his father's house to build a new family. And 2 Samuel begins to show us that God is still intent on establishing a new family of people. This is the household of Israel, later, the household of God. And in this household, God will dwell with all his people. Okay, Second Samuel begins to draw a new picture, though, as well, of how God relates to his people. We are reminded here that David was just a lowly shepherd boy before God called him to be king. And we begin to understand that the kings of Israel are to shepherd the people of Israel like a good shepherd cares and provides for, even fights for his flock, And we also get, which we've seen just a little bit last week, father-son language. And we realize God not only has a specific relationship to Israel, but a very specific affection for the king he installs over his people. The coming king of glory will be called God's son. That is a very specific title he will wear. And when he calls himself the son of God, The people of Israel will know what he's claiming. Now, last week, I talked about the difference between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring being the father. And I made the point that God is the actual, God is the father of the woman's offspring. So I want to clarify a couple things first. When I talk about the woman's offspring, I'm using that in two senses, First, the offspring of the woman, its specific reference is the coming king of glory. But as people show belief in God's words and faith in his promises, they come to be identified with this king in his line, and they are grafted into this family of offspring from the woman. So when I say the offspring of the woman, I am sometimes referring to all of God's faithful people. But in specific prophecies, um, I'm, the offspring of the woman is very definitively the king of glory. And I, in my effort to say the difference between these lines um, is the father, God is the father of the woman's offspring, and the snake is the father of the serpent's offspring. I, I made the case a little strongly, and I said the father is not Abraham and not Adam. So I just want to clarify that a little bit. I'm I'm just making a uh, spiritual—I'm claiming that God is the spiritual father of all his people. But Adam is very definitely our father, right? We descend from him biologically, and we all inherit a sin nature from him. Um, And Abraham becomes our father even to Gentile people when, through belief in the king of glory, we are grandfathered into his offspring. Okay. So, we see in Abraham's promise this recapturing of the language of father and son. Now, let's look at Psalm 2. Sometime after David received the mind-blowing blessing of 2 Samuel 7, he wrote this psalm, which is often called the coronation psalm. And when you read it, you can see just how much David had been meditating on God's promise to him. He connects his blessing with the coming of the great king of glory. Let's look at it. It's on page 33 in your workbooks. So in verse 2, we see there are lots of enemies. Enemies who are not just marshalling their strength and forming alliances to fight Israel, but to fight Israel's God. Specifically, they are raging against God's plan to establish a king to rule them. You can see that in verse two, where it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed is another way of referring to the Lord's chosen king. And now remember, our enemy knows what we know. He knows that the king of glory who will crush him will come through David's line. So his sights are trained on Israel. That is why David had so many enemies. But in David, we see what will be true on a larger scale for the king of glory. God gave David victory over and rest from his enemies. Well, the king of glory will also triumph over and have rest from his enemies. Verse 1 makes it clear that all this raging and plotting is in vain. These enemies have exactly zero chance of overthrowing God's king, but still they rage and they are raging against God and his king for a specific reason, which we find in verse three. They say, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Okay. They don't want to be ruled. They hate God's words and his commandments. So casting off the cords and bonds is exactly what the snake tempted Eve to do. And she believed his lie, as these offspring of the snake believe the same lie, that God's limitations on your life are meant to keep you down. They're meant to harm you. But God has shown repeatedly that living by his words is the blessed life obedience to his commands brings blessing. Remember just how awful things got during the time of the judges when the people of Israel cast off his cords. Perversion of every kind, violence, oppression, that is not freedom. God's cords and bonds are meant for our good. And in a moment, we'll get a preview of just how good they are. But in this psalm, God displays his anger toward mankind for their continued rebellion. He laughs at them in derision. And then unfazed, he carries on with his plan, saying in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. And then a surprising thing happens. We actually hear the king of glory speak. His words are in verses 7 through 9. He speaks of God's call on his life. He reveals God's plan for him and the special relationship he will have to God. This is what he says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So four things to notice here. First, the plan is for the king of glory to easily break his enemies. This is the same word family as bruise from Genesis 3 and crush and destroy from Numbers 24. He will dash these nations to pieces. So imagine a terracotta pot baking in the sun on a hot summer's day what happens if you drop it? It shatters. In the face of this king, the rebel nations of the world will have the strength of a clay pot in the hot sun, and yet they rage on. Second, God calls his king, my son, saying, today I have begotten you. And with these words, God is actually previewing the resurrection. That is why I had you go to the book of Acts to see how Jesus' disciples applied this psalm to him. Their spirit-inspired use of this prophecy teaches us that God didn't create this king as he has every other human, but he did give him life when he raised his dead body from the grave. And that is going to be the biggest reversal of the curse yet, but it's hidden for now. It's tucked away in this psalm. It's a mystery for us New Testament readers to be able to look back and say, wow, what an amazing plan God had since the beginning. But third, you can see in the heritage and possession language that David is connecting Abraham's blessing with this king. So remember, in Genesis 17, God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants as their everlasting possession. And now Psalm 2 makes it clear that the king won't just inherit the promised land, but what? What will he inherit? What will be his possession? You see it? The ends of the earth. His kingdom will cover the earth. Okay, a little summary here then from Psalm 2. From this Psalm, we understand that the king of glory will bless all families of the earth by ruling the world from his throne in Israel. We can see that in verse 6. His throne is established in Zion. And we learn that before he establishes his earthwide kingdom of blessing, he must first crush all his enemies, the snake and all his offspring, and then the obedience of the nations will be his. So we see God's just judgment in this crushing of his enemies in this psalm, but not only is God just, he is merciful. Did you see that there is fresh mercy running through this psalm? Verse 10 is a warning and an invitation to the very kings and rulers who have joined forces with the snake to fight God and overthrow his anointed king. They are warned of God's wrath against them, and they are told of the consequences if they persist in their rebellion. They will be broken and dashed. They will be terrified when they see God's anger and the power of the king he has raised up to destroy them. But at any time, they can reverse course. As it says in verse 11, serve the Lord. Because that is what God's people do. It was Israel's mission. It was Samuel's calling. It was what King David did. And it's what the coming king of glory will do. And the invitation is open for God's enemies to become his servants. How did they do that? They can serve the Lord by turning from their rebellion and embracing his king. That's what the word kiss gets at. That is a kiss of loyalty that people offer their sovereign. When Samuel first anointed Saul as king, he kissed him as a sign of reverence and affection and loyalty. And the kings of the earth and the rulers who are joining forces against God, they If they just turn and kiss this king, this is what they'll receive. Look at the first word of the last verse. Blessed. If these rebels turn from their rebellion and kiss the king, they too can exchange God's curse for his blessing if they will only kiss God's chosen king. And what's true for them is true for all of us if we want God's blessing, if we want to escape the curse on the snake and all his offspring, we just have to stop resisting God and embrace his king of glory. Salvation comes through him. Okay, so this Psalm shows us what we've already seen. We've seen that the battle between the woman and the snake rages on outside the garden. And once again, we recognize that we should not be surprised by the fiery trials this conflict produces in our lives. The story of the world is just playing out exactly as God said it would way back in the garden. But he has a plan. It is a plan that none of us could have devised or predicted, but he has proven himself right Time and time again, he has proven his faithfulness to keep his promises. He has shown us his power and ability to keep them. And now, in this psalm, he is very specifically directing our attention toward his Son, the King of Glory, letting us know that if we just cling to him, we can ride the waves of suffering and distress. We can endure the attacks of our enemies because all will be well. But if you doubt that this world can be fixed or that God has the power to crush the snake and restore Eden, this next account is for you. In the account of 2nd Chronicles 7 and 8, God gives us in the reign of Solomon a preview of just how great it will be to have his king ruling the earth. So in David's blessing in 2 Samuel, not only does God promise to make David into an enduring dynastic house, he also promises that the son who immediately succeeds David on the throne will be the one to build that earthly house that David wanted to build, the earthly house for God. And that is exactly what happens. In Second Chronicles 7, King Solomon is now on the throne of Israel. And he has built a magnificent temple for God, and he gathers the people of Israel together to consecrate it. And Solomon here is a picture of what a king can and should do for his people. He is sacrificing animals to cover their sins. He is praying for them, speaking to God for them. He praises God for his faithfulness to keep his promises. He asks God to bless the people of Israel. He asks God to always hear their cries of repentance and to keep forgiving their sins. He asks God to even bless the foreigner who comes from a distant land to seek Israel's God. And he asks God, Keep fighting for us. Keep fighting our enemies and would-be oppressors. And then he asks God to come and fill his new home and live among his people. And when he finishes praying... God's glory fills the temple, and his fire consumes the sacrifices and offerings. So full of glory is the temple that the priest can't even begin to get inside, and we begin to see God's glory isn't meant to be contained in an earthly house, but it is meant to fill the earth. Well, Israel sees this, and they bow down spontaneously in gratitude and worship, and they thank the Lord because of his faithfulness and steadfast love for them. And then for the next seven days, they feast and celebrate. And when they return home, it says in Second uh, Chronicles 8.10, they return home joyful And glad of heart for the prosperity the Lord granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Look how good it is to be with God under the rule of his king the Israelites, were told, were grateful for the prosperity God had given them. And I don't know if you got to question number 34 in your homework, but if you didn't, it would be worth revisiting because the early years of Solomon's reign were remarkable. Queen Sheba from the south hears about Solomon and his wisdom, so she travels a great distance to meet him, bringing him gifts and testifying Wow, God must really love his people because he gave them you, Solomon, to rule and execute justice and righteousness. She sees what a gift a good king is to his people. She also exclaims that the men who serve Solomon must be so happy because they get to stand in his presence and just hear his words of wisdom. So we see in Solomon's reign a picture of the plan God has had from the beginning. He wants to dwell with his people in the world that he has made for them. And he wants his people to rule this world with his character, as Solomon is doing in the early part of his reign. Scripture goes on to show us that under Solomon's dominion, Israel enjoyed peace, and safety. We're told that each family had its own vine and fig tree and they ate and they drank and they were happy. We also find Solomon ruling over many vassal nations who pay him tribute just like the king of glory will rule over the nations. We're told that the whole earth sought Solomon's presence and wisdom. They want to hear his words, and so they came, bringing him rich gifts, and this, too, is a picture of how the nations will come to Zion to hear from the king of glory. Solomon's reign in these descriptions sounds like a reversal of the curse, doesn't it? No hunger, no poverty, no enemies, no injustice. Earthwide blessing on the nations who come to Zion to hear his wisdom. What a stark difference from the days of the judges. But in Solomon, we get only a preview of all the good God has in store for his people when the king of glory crushes his enemies and brings blessing to the world by ruling from his throne in Israel. On that day, Israel's experience will be ours unending joy and gladness of heart, a heart so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that you can't even stand. So overcome are you with gratitude for his blessing. But I am sorry to say that this goodness didn't last. Even Solomon, who looked like he could be the one, even he turned away from God's words First King 11 begins this way. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, and when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Solomon began to worship false gods, and our Eden reboot comes crashing down. But for a moment, we had a glimpse of what a good king can do for his people. But the second half of Solomon's reign shows just how much damage a bad king can do to his people. The people of Israel followed the example of their king and began to worship idols. In their prosperity, they turned away from God. And once more, the ugly cycle of the days of the judges begins to repeat itself two quick reflections on the story so far. Why does God keep retelling the same story? We saw it first with Adam, then Noah, then Israel in the wilderness, with Israel in the promised land during the time of the judges. Now we even see it after a king from Judah sits on the throne of Israel. Why have all these Edens failed? because the enemy within must also be crushed. And rebellion is bound up in the hearts of humanity. And these repeated stories show us just how bad the problem of sin is. Because we don't always believe it, but our greatest enemy is not the wretched curse on the ground, It's arguably not even the snake. We have seen his impotence in his multiple failed efforts to prevent the birth of the one who will crush him. It's not his offspring who are the biggest threat. The biggest threat facing humanity is in our own traitorous hearts and the desires that we are born with to cast off God's cords and his bonds and to make ourselves king in his place. How will the king of glory crush this enemy, the one that is so entwined around the hearts even of his chosen nation? You will have to keep reading to find out. But just remember, these Eden reboots all failed because of sin. Not because of the snake, though he is crafty, and he will certainly use the curse on the ground, and he will use our own evil inclinations against us. But ultimately, these Eden reboots failed because of sin. And because we are slow to understand and believe that, God keeps telling the same story. But also, we should notice how many ways God repackages the story to drive home his central message, that in spite of our sin, he loves us and he wants to live with us. He speaks of his love for his people like the father, like a father has for his children. He speaks of his love for his people like a husband for a wife. He speaks of his love for his people like a shepherd for his flock. And he's going to repackage this message over and over again so that the truth of it begins to dawn on our darkened minds and we finally believe it. God really loves us. And despite everything... Despite the evil attempts of the snake and the multiplication of his offspring, despite the curse of death that hangs over us for our sin, even despite our own wayward hearts, despite all of this, he will send the king of glory to crush all these enemies and deliver us from their enslaving power so that we can be with God, joyful, And glad of heart for all the prosperity, the blessings he grants to his people through his king of glory. Let's pray. Thank you so much, dear Father, for your loyal love to us. Thank you for loving us even while we were still sinners. And thank you that you have a plan to crush all these enemies, even the ones so bound up in our hearts. Thank you for sending the great King of glory to crush these enemies and to restore us and to allow us to be with you. We love you. Imperfectly, our hearts are so frail, but we do love you. We pray that you would teach us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.